Okay. Welcome back. They were selling tickets outside the women's restroom. I saw the line. It was very impressive. By the way, yeah, you can, you can, like Disney though, you can pay a little extra fee and expedite, you know, and get up in front of everybody. Um, I did think about one thing though in Dr. Benson's talk. Um, she mentioned that monoclonal antibody, and here's how I, I describe it as ibilazomet. Now, why do I say ibil? Because ibil is a Yiddish word that means sick to your stomach. <laughs> ibil. And it usually goes with a word called schwach. So schwach is washed out. So when you're schwach and ibil, that's what you feel like when you had norovirus. Right? You schwach, you're ibil, eh. And it lasts for about 18 hours. And usually from a cruise ship. Okay. Well, welcome to our panel and welcome back. Um, I'm going to start at the far end and come this way. Dr. Susanna Nagy, who you'll hear from later, is from Duke University, and she focuses on uh, basketball and hepatitis C. Um, Larry D'Angelo is here in town at the National Children's Center and has been involved in the AIDS epidemic for really since the beginning, uh, working with uh, kids and moms with HIV, and welcome, Larry. Glad you're here. Um, Henry Mazur, you know. Um, and Dana, you just heard from. Dr. Glenn Treesman is a, a rec recurring uh, offender here. Um, and uh, he's going to be speaking uh, after, this, after lunch. Um, and this time he's going to talk about opioid epidemic. epidemic. Uh, and uh, the purpose of this panel is to make Glenn look real smart. That's what he told me he wanted to do. Um, and then Dr. Benson, you've already met. So here we go. The way I've organized this is to those of you who've seen this type of talk from me before, um, rather than just showing a case and getting to the question, I found that a lot of folks struggle with, well, wait a minute, what's this case about? And so to make that easier, uh, I start with a question, and then the case follows, and we're trying to address that question. And where these questions come from are, uh, through the course of the year, I keep track of questions that come up to me in clinic from uh, other, from fellows or from sometimes other attendings or phone calls I get through the course of the year about what do I do with this type of case or, the, or another. Uh, and so, so I track all those and then the ones that I think are most controversial are oftentimes where there is no answer, but yet it's common where we're all struggling with every day in practice. I put that in this talk and then we had the panel discuss and Feel free to come to the microphone or throw rotten tomatoes or whatever you'd like to do. If you do, make sure the aim is a little bit in this direction and away from the podium here. Um, but the point is that uh, we're going to talk about common things that we all encounter in practice today. Uh, these are my uh, disclosures, uh, do research grants from some of the pharma companies and also have consulted uh, for uh, uh, a couple of them. So we're going to talk about initiation of therapy. I don't, we don't ask the question anymore uh, when to start. That's been answered. Um, but uh, what to use in different situations, what to do when people are suppressed virologically, uh, what to do with seropositive partners, um, and then coronary disease, among other things. Okay, so here we go. The first question. Seems like we're starting ARV for about everyone. What do we do for that elite controller, right? Here we go. So this is a 30-year-old guy who was diagnosed with HIV infection four years ago. He's asymptomatic. 
undetectable virus, you never could detect it, but you'd send off an HIV DNA, which they do in children all the time, uh, infants, or, and it was positive. And the CD4 counters remained in the eight to 900 range, not drifting downward. His other labs are normal. His B5701 is negative. His genotype from the DNA is wild type. He's had no prior medical history to speak of. Um, and he's okay to start therapy if you tell him, yeah, I think that's a good idea. So what to do? Would you treat, don't vote yet, yes, no, maybe, now go ahead and vote. So this is Ilya Kuryakin and Napoleon Solo and Mr. Waverly. Remember him? Barely. Okay, so the majority of the audience thinks yes. This looks like a typical vote in the United States where 43% is a majority. Um, and maybe that's the sort of Green Party. So what do we think here? Um, uh, Connie, what would you do? Would you treat this guy or are you going to... Don't ask me. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I was a maybe voter. Okay. Uh, to me, the bottom line is I don't know, and I'm not afraid to admit I don't know. Um, obviously, it's very hard for us to predict who's an elite controller. It's impossible for us to predict how long somebody's going to be an elite controller, and we don't know the long-term consequences of still having some replicating HIV around, even if you are an elite controller. So I think we need to have those kinds of individuals, if they're willing to do so, be in a research study so that yep. we can evaluate and answer some of those questions. Okay. So I guess that's a maybe, and you may be doing that in the context Definitely of a maybe. research Definitely maybe sounds study. like a name of a movie. Dana, uh, thoughts? I mean, I would have a <clears throat> shared discussion around, you know, what we do know about increased rates of maybe hospitalization uh, in patients who uh, have higher rates of um, morbidity with cardiovascular complications elite controllers compared to those who are undetectable from drugs, you know, some of those observational things that we know because we don't have the randomized clinical trial to answer the question. So it's, it's an informed discussion uh, yeah. telling them about some of those complications and just, you know, analyzing people's uh, ability to tolerate risk or uncertainty um, yeah. and just advise them the best you can, I think, based on Right. Um, anybody feel strongly one way or the other, yes or no? Not really. I, I might ask this question. This would be a question rather than a, rather than an answer. Um, so uh, you and I both discussed many times that we think virus is bad for you. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we think virus is bad for you is because it causes inflammation. Supposing your patient was, instead of young, was older, had cardiovascular disease, had multiple other reasons to have chronic inflammation, um, like um, my patient who has, uh, has elevated cholesterol, has, uh, has history of, of cardiovascular episodes, two, uh, two mild MIs, um, and is it, is it fairly high risk for ongoing uh, infl inflammatory disease anyway? Mm -hmm. Would that moderate it for you? Would that change what you do? I think so. That, that's actually a good setup for the, uh, the data slides I was going to show as part of this. So, 
Um, these are data from the UCSF group and Peter Hunt. Um, and the, if you, to orient you a little bit on the far right-hand side are those people who have ongoing replication, a standard untreated person with a high virus. Um, and the amount of inflammation this time is measured by CD38 positive T cells uh, is pretty high. And you can see on the far left-hand side, those people who are HIV negative, they don't have typically as much inflammation. But notice the two bars in the middle. The one group is somebody who, a group of patients who are on antiretroviral therapy and less than 50 sustained, and then the elite controllers not on therapy. And you can see, as Dr. Treesman suggested, there is some ongoing replication. Uh, but you can't detect it in terms of virus being there, and that's causing some inflammation typically in lymphoid tissue. So there's a th biologic theoretical reason to intervene. Where I'm sensing t tension in the field, though, is that a lot of the, quote, cure research is headed for something called functional cure. You've heard that term, right? And what that basically means is you treat with some sort of immune modulator or you treat with some vaccines or whatever the approach, but the goal is to get someone who had had a very uh, uh, detectable virus pre-therapy, they've been on antiretroviral therapy, you do some interventions, you withdraw the therapy and the hope is that their virus stays undetectable. And in essence, you've converted them to an elite controller. But is that victory? And especially when you see a slide like this, and the way that I kind of think about it is that the virus is in the body and it's got one job, that's to survive and replicate. It's like most men survive and replicate. And that's what it wants to do all the time. And the immune system is pretty good about holding it back, right? But that takes energy and effort, and usually in the form of inflammation. So you can help it out by giving antiretroviral therapy, but the balance here is how much benefit are you getting? And I don't know the answer to the question either, but I lean towards treatment, and I'm a little bit wary of the functional cure answer as we are currently approaching it. If we can eradicate HIV, just get rid of it, boom, yeah, great, like hepatitis C you're gonna hear about later. That's a cure, but a functional cure, not so sure. Um, the similar data, uh, same group, this time it's Priscilla Sue, and you can just see, again, this is a different metric, but the, this is intermedial, intermedial carotid artery thickening, and you can see that the elite controllers are somewhat uh, similar to the, uh, to the folks on heart or um, even the non-controllers there. Yeah, Connie. So one point I always like try to make when we're talking about this, these kinds of data is that we tend, just like we lump people who are fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy into one category as if they're all the same, we lump elite controllers as if they're all the same. And I don't think they are all the same. And so I really firmly believe that that's a group of individuals no matter how we look at it, that we should be studying intensively in, right. in research activities because we need, to, I, we need to be able to address the question, especially if functional cure is a goal of the cure agenda, right. but we need to understand what we're doing with that. And right. I don't think by lumping them all into one class mm -hmm. of elite controllers, we're doing them any favor there. Uh, and I agree. And the, one of, the data, one of the pieces of data that I think is emerging that I, I, can, I think we can all hang our hat on, and that's something uh, related to CD4-CD8 ratio. We get it on everyone. I mean, 
when every time we order a flow cytometry, we get we look mostly at the CD4 count, but the CD4, CD8 are usually in the same run. And if you look at that ratio and divide it into quintiles, um, the, the group with the lowest CD4, CD8 ratio, say less than 0.4 or 0.5, those are the folks who typically do worse. So that might be my tiebreaker. If I'm sort of on the fence, I look at their CD4, CD8 ratio. If it's less than 0.5 or 0.6, I'm probably going to pull the trigger and recommend therapy. If it's 1 or 1.2, mm. might want to watch for a while, unless they're older, as Dr. Treesman said. So that's an attempt to answer the question, but I think we need to underscore what everybody on the panel has said, which is we really don't know. And I'm not sure we're ever going to have a randomized trial. Um, it's just a lot of people and hard to, and your long-term follow-up's got to be real long. Uh, so I'm not sure we're going to get the answer. So let's move on to more practical. Now we know we're going to treat most people. What regimen should I use as initial therapy? So here's a 48-year-old guy, newly diagnosed, asymptomatic. Viral load's about 28,000. CD4 counts 650. Most people would agree they'd treat. Uh, B5701 is negative, wild-type virus, genotype. Uh, no prior medical history to speak of and normal renal function. He's okay to start and will do whatever you recommend as far as what to treat. I'm going to let you look at this for a second. You have several fixed-dose combination options, um, and some using TAF, some using TDF, some using Abacavir. Uh, some using the, the answer nine is dolutegravir with 3TC. Uh, other options. Now let's go ahead and vote. Dr. Loveless. How about that for an obscure reference for the wild, wild west and Jim West? Okay, so survey says most people are for the fixed dose combination of either a dolutegravir or elvitegravir or using tenofovir FTC or 3TC, TAF FTC with uh, dolutegravir. Uh, some folks with raltegravir and no one went for ropivirine, which I find interesting. Um, Thoughts from the panel? Dana? I mean, you know, there's the, the recommended regimens that the DHS comes out with, and a lot of people have chosen those. Um, you know, I think there was an interesting little study that an anthropologist at Yale did that to talk to people about their impressions of whether single tab regimens are, uh, they feel like th those would be favorable over multiple and I think as providers we always think that people will want a single pill but it was interesting that she found and there's some demographic differences that there are some patients who really thought that they're getting more effectively treated if they take more pills so I think that's something to keep in mind if, if they you want, won't want to presume that they want a single tab regimen but if they want a single tab regimen um, you know the the two uh, that are highlighted there I think are are reasonable options just, I just want to just put out there ever so uh, quickly based on what Connie uh, was talking about with the atazanavir and getting at the inflammation. I, this is totally not evidence-based, but if, if people um, 
or are thinking about uh, reg one regimen being better over another one eventually is that hyperbilirubinemia induced by atazanavir um, it may end up uh, having an, an impact on interval thickness and play a role into some of the anti-inflammatory. I think it's going to be interesting to keep an eye out for that, mm. that we shouldn't let atazanavir go, go by the wayside and um, there could be something that could be compelling about having a little yellowness into their eyes that they shouldn't worry about too much. But I certainly in our clinic, and I think it's very geographical, people end up kind of ending up developing their favorites. So we use a lot of um, the dolutegravir and, and um, a back of your 3TC as well as uh, the new uh, Gilead TAF. Okay. <clears throat> Susanna? Yeah, thoughts? I mean, I would say, if anything, the beauty of this slide is that, as, as, as you heard, the majority of these, or a number of these, are recommended by the DHHS guidelines. So you have lots of great options. And I think most of us make these decisions based on the individual patient. Um, I, interestingly, I look at everything as it relates to access to DAA therapies for hep C patients. So um, some of these I use more commonly because I'm already thinking down the line of getting them on a regimen where they're, you know, some of the boosted regimens, et cetera, may not be as, as safe um, or recommended in combination. But I think it really is the beauty of it. I think what may be more interesting is, is when some of these regimens become generic uh -huh. and, and cost starts to play a role in the decision making, how much this might change if we were to ask this question next year. Right. And, and to us, uh, cost is uh, sort of a black box, literally. We don't know what people are paying. And that's not just for HIV, that's for everything. Um, I was asked to give a TEDx talk about two months ago, and I went on a rant about how we pay for pharmaceutical drugs and how you'd never go out and buy a cell phone or a car without knowing the price of what you're buying, and yet we prescribe drugs all the time. We know the list price, but that means absolutely nothing because there's a, there's a negotiated rate off of AWP that we have no frickin' idea uh, what's going on, and that needs to change. We need to pull back the cover, shine a light on this so we can, then we might have a chance to know if a generic goes, but between 340B pricing and ADAP pricing and you, who knows what, maybe the generics won't be any cheaper. Uh, so that's that. The other points I wanted to make from this, and there's a follow-up, there's a follow-up uh, question here on the next case, um, but I want to just say that, like Susanna and, and Dana said, the, Pretty much all of these regimens are okay. Nothing wrong with them. I think ropivirine is a fine choice here. Viral load is uh, undetect or is less than 100,000, and it's a pretty simple regimen, pretty well tolerated. We're going to see a lot more of ropivirine, perhaps, with dolutegravir as a combo, and um, as we move forward, maybe some of the long-acting cabotegravir things. The one regimen on here that is controversial because there's not enough data yet is dolutegravir 3TC, and at Croy there was a. Uh, exploratory study that hinted in this type of patient with a lower viral load it might be worth doing. Avoid dolutegravir monotherapy. There's a hypothetical reason that it might not have resistance to it, but at Croy there were studies that showed, yep, oops, there is some resistance that can emerge with monotherapy, just like you might have suspected. Higher barrier for sure um, than if you gave, say, a Favrin's monotherapy or 3TC monotherapy, but you can get resistance, so avoid that, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Let's go to the next slide. It's the same guy, basically, um, except his viral load at baseline is 760,000, and the CD4 counts 21. So now, regimens are mostly the same. You'll notice that I took out uh, the 
Dolutegravir 3TC, but I added in Raltegravir once daily. You say, why'd you do that? Well, there's a new formulation coming out, probably, uh, I think it's uh, date of decision from the FDA is uh, May 27th or so. It just got approved in the EU, uh, and it's a it's 600 milligram tablet that you give two once a day with two nukes, for example. So raltegravir will be given once daily. And I think that um, study, Dana, you mentioned about number of pills don't matter, but times a day, two times a day does matter, right? So people sometimes forget. So that's going to uh, change raltegravir's uh, profile a little bit, but it will be uh, three tablets as opposed to maybe one if you use another regimen. Anyway, I'm getting at the question here about a more advanced patient. You've had a chance to look. I've filibustered enough. People do that in the city. Um, let's go ahead and vote. Is there a magical regimen that you can just twitch your nose at and it works? Elizabeth Montgomery would know, Dick York. I know which Darren, that's a good question. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to do that. All right, there we go. So, a lot of folks stayed with their initial choice of those two fixed dose combinations. Um, the Dalutegravir FTC TAF picked up. Um, some folks went with the once daily. Uh, thoughts from the panel, generally or otherwise? Henry, any, any concerns here or general thoughts about what might be better? I think it looks like most of the audience are aware of some of the limitations of some of the uh, regimens uh, if you have a uh, high viral load. And I think that's probably uh, appropriate, but uh, I think most people seem to go along with the uh, guidelines. And uh, Larry, are there any issues with uh, the adolescent population that you see? Well, you know, we, we always like to choose uh, a, a regimen where it's going to be as simple as possible. Uh, and since all of my patients uh, are under the age of 24, uh, and the majority of them uh, have, uh, you know, believe the mantra, one pill once a day, uh, they only want to take one pill once a day. And they so, didn't read the study by Yale, did they? <laughs> that's right, they haven't. Uh, they want to take one pill once a day. And I also look at, you know, how long is my pa are my patients going to be on medications? A lot of us have patients that are going to be on medications. We're looking down the line, 40 to 50 to 60 years. Uh, and so I want to choose a medication regimen that's going to have the least number of long-term side effects. Uh, because I know from the Adolescent Trials Network studies that, uh, you know, even in a relatively short period of time for adolescents who are, who are experiencing bone growth, that there are some medications that have significant effects on them. Right. So what would you choose? Just if, let's say, it was a 16-year-old. Uh, I think I would go with uh, TAF-3-TC and Dietegravir. Yeah. But that's going to be two pills at least. I know. Yeah. I know. But, but they're also going to be smaller pills. That's true. That's right. You'd be amazed at how many people want smaller pills. Yeah. Yeah. One something people don't ask about. My patients all want smaller pills. Right. So size matters. Uh, Susanna. No, I, I totally agree with that. You know, we have our little picture thing, and when I start to point at the small pills, they're like, yes, that's the one. I that's want. the one. I don't I care want. about yeah. two pills. I, I think that BID is an issue, and I think the large pills is an issue. So before we move on, I, I will point out um, 
it's it's uncommon in this presentation for there to be some really wrong and absolutely a for sure wrong answer. This one has one. So unfortunately for the 2% who picked a ropivirine here, that's one where you probably wouldn't use. That's the one example where you wouldn't because it's not to say it doesn't work. It just doesn't work quite as well when the viral load's above 100,000. And for a Bacavir, the same thing is true except when it's paired with Dalutegravir. So those are the two teaching points from the slide. Um, but otherwise, I think most any of these regimens are fair game and should work, and it gets down to moderating the preferences and dealing with the population of, or the person that's sitting across from you. Whoops. Okay. How come it's not taken? Well, that was it. Well, am I going backwards? There we go. So these are just the recommendations they were alluded to. One thing I would um, highlight here is that underneath the, the top group is virtually all um, integrase inhibitor-based regimens, and below the line are what we call alternative regimens. I, people tend to think alternative is bad. Alternative is just fine. It's okay to use an alternative regimen. It's just alternative. Um, so use your judgment. You, you're except for alternative facts. There's a little bit different than that. Dr. Benson, a good point. But none of these are fake news. These are real news. Um, and, and so don't, don't hesitate, in my opinion, to use the alternative regimens either. You're, you've got this incredible uh, array of choices. Take advantage of it. Well, so Mike, you would, you would maintain that either for the IAS USA guidelines or for the HHS guidelines, the fact that there is a group that the panel has put in the recommended does not necessarily mean that there are advantages in terms of safety and toxicity, safety and efficacy. I'm not sure that everybody would agree with that. Well, what I'm saying is that we have, you're right, there's a reason that some are recommended and others are alternative, that's for sure. But what I, what I see some clinicians saying is, well, that's not a recommended regimen. I can't use it, when of course you can. And uh, as far as the alternative list, so the, the regimens that are here are all fine in the given situation where you think you have an advantage of using it. Dana just mentioned about atazanavir. We didn't talk too much about darunavir, but it's a very, it's a fine regimen and uh, can be used. Sometimes uh, there's reasons you might choose that. Um, even Favrin's FTC and Tenofovir DF uh, the sort of fixed dose we've used for years. About 8% of you chose that on the first case. Um, and, and it's okay too. It's, a lot of people don't go to it because of neuropsych issues and that type of thing. But um, it, it, you, have to, you have to play this out to the patient that is in front of you, and that's what being a clinician is about. That's, I guess, the take-home point. Susanna? And I would just add to that. I think, it's, I think it is really important um, for, for, for everyone to realize that a, that a alternative regimen is, is not a not recommended regimen, right? Correct. I mean, there are many, there are not recommended regimens. There are things you shouldn't do. But alternative simply means it may be the best regimen for your patient, but when you generalize it to all comers, right. it may not be the best regimen for all comers. And right. I think that's always really yeah. important to, to emphasize. I would also just add, I mean, obviously the Darunavir-based regimen remains a recommended regimen per the DHHS guidelines. Um, this is an area where DHHS and ISUSA actually uh, differ. That's correct, yeah. Connie? 
So one point that's sometimes made with the case that you presented is that the data from maybe earlier clinical trials suggested that protease inhibitor-based therapies mm. were more effective in people with very high viral loads right. than were other alternative regimens. Uh, I think with the newer integrase inhibitor-based regimens, particularly the fixed-dose combinations, that sort of lore in the HIV world has gone by the wayside right. because although we certainly have more experience with protease inhibitors, the integrase inhibitor-based regimens are equally active at very high viral loads. So and I for that matter, so is efavirenz. I yes. mean, if you go back, so this to me, I've said this to this audience before, those of you who have been to the course before, is if you think about how we got to where we are, it, it's a chronology, and nevirapine was really the first non-nuke, and it had some issues, and it wasn't quite together enough to compete against the protease inhibitors who came next. And then efavirenz followed, but efavirenz was labeled as being appropriately a non-nuke and therefore lumped with nevirapine, despite the fact the data showed that if viral load is above 100,000, for that matter above 500,000, it worked just as well in the head-to-head -head comparisons with protease inhibitors. But that fact uh, tended to get lost in the noise of, of the label of, of being a non-nuke. So those are all important things. But all this being said, I think the majority of our patients will end up on one of these regimens, um, and I would predict that the raltegravir once daily will take the place of the raltegravir twice daily. Uh, it's hard to imagine why you might choose that, uh, the twice daily, maybe pill size. Um, that might be a reason. Uh, but other than that, these are the regimens we're going to use. This, I thought I'd finish this section with this slide. These are the minimum cost of ARV therapies for one year, not a month, one year in PEPFAR countries. Isn't that something? All right. Uh, I don't have to say much more. Just there's. You didn't talk about, <clears throat> you didn't talk about uh, resistance um, barrier. And one of the things that um, my patients tend to be a mm, little less compliant maybe than some of the trials patients uh, or a lot less or take their drugs totally at random. So <coughs> let's randomize trial. Exactly. Yeah. And they're not in randomized trials even though they randomly take their medicines which is something very upsetting to them. Right. Um, but they also randomly come to the clinic. So Even more random. So the, the question is, um, what, integrase inhibitors clearly have a better barrier than non-nukes. And the question is, do, do, do we still have a big, do we still have a barrier advantage with protease inhibitors over integrase inhibitors? Is it meaningful? It, 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 the answer is, it depends. And I think within the integrase inhibitor class, uh, there's no question that dolutegravir has a higher barrier than, say, raltegravir or alvotegravir. Coming up, bictegravir that Connie told you about has got, uh, looks to be a similar barrier of resistance as dolutegravir has. So there are some nuances there. And uh, uh, the protease inhibitors as a rule, especially darunavir, has had a pretty high barrier of resistance. So yeah, that's it. And some sometimes, I mean, the other thing to think about, of course, I'm preaching to the choir here, but anytime you're going to add COBE or ritonavir as a booster, you're opening up the door to a lot of drug-drug interactions, and if patients in your clinic who are on 
different, like sometimes a panoply of uh, antidepressants and other things, it's something that you gotta manage very carefully. Because uh, one advantage I've noticed is that um, uh, it, sometimes people who are already on a ritonavir or COBE-based regimen, and I wanna start them on a uh, antidepressant, a lot of times the antidepressant levels go higher now that could be associated with toxicity. It also could be associated with beneficial effect, right? Because I think sometimes we tend to underdose antidepressants and that sometimes has a better outcome as you've pointed out many times. Okay, but be careful, right? Okay, so let's move on. This is a common question. Um, what do I do when the baseline resistance test shows an M184V? Does it change what I order? Uh, how do I deal with that? So this is a 30-year-old lady who presents newly diagnosed, asymptomatic. Remarkably, she has the exact same viral load and CD4 count as a guy in the first case. I don't know how that happened. Copy-paste phenomena, I suspect. But her genotype shows an M184V. No significant history, is, doesn't have children, doesn't plan on becoming pregnant, she says. And she's okay to start therapy if you think she should. So what would you choose here? This is a woman, M184V, at baseline, uh, otherwise healthy, not pregnant. Uh, let you look for a second more, and then we'll try to guess what the next song is. Here we go. She's one of Charlie's angels. That's a hint. I don't know if that affects what you do here, but... Okay, wow. Pretty interesting spread. Uh, the survey says, ooh, interesting. So a lot of people went with the Bacavir, a lot of people, and others went with TAF-FTC. I guess the bottom line as I'm looking through this is that the majority of people didn't change too much from what they would have done in the past, or from the, from the first case. I, I like the fact that nobody went for Dalutegravir 3TC. That's a good move. Seriously, right? Because that's one where you're basically hanging Dalutegravir out to dry as monotherapy. So obviously a very sophisticated crowd. Uh, nice. Um, so, panel, thoughts on this? Is there anything on here that catches your attention to say, hmm, not so fast, my friend. I mean, I, I would just say that, I mean, obviously the general approach is that you want uh, three active drugs, if, if you possible. Can. Um, and, uh, and, and if you're going to go with two, you really want a high barrier agent, I would argue. Right. So, I mean, I think we see some examples here where, for example, in a Favrins, as you mentioned, or a Rautegravir, I would argue in albitegravir, you're, you're potentially increasing the risk of, of resistance. We certainly know from the switch mark patients that had M184Vs were more likely to, to, to break through. So I would think focusing on the ones, if you're going to go with a regimen that's really only going to offer two drugs, which yeah. every regimen on here um, I think is the case. Um, I see 5% said see other, some other option, and my guess is those are the people who are really targeting um, a com combination that's going to give them three active drugs, you know. Um, uh, like some sort of a dolutegravir plus a rilpivirine FTC TAF combination, two drugs, three active agents, um, uh, maybe what they were thinking is my guess. But I think we still aim 
for right. three when we can when we can get it, and if not, high barrier, which is going to be yep. the dalutegravir or the PIs. So, in the interest of time, I'll just jump to the key teaching points from my perspective. Um, point one is that the 184V, as everyone has picked up on, has impact on FTC and 3TC for sure. It doesn't eliminate them. Like if you get a K103N for a Favrins, it pretty much doesn't have any activity to speak of. But if you have a M184V with 3TC and FTC, there's still about a 0.5 log activity. So it's not like zero activity. So having either of those in the regimen is, is okay, as long as the other drugs around them are not affected or maybe even enhanced. So in this case, I would argue that the second answer is suspect because abacavir does take some hit. It's not huge, but it's some. So you got 3TC that would be hit and you have a Bacavir that's hit some, and then you have Dalutegravir that's pretty strong, right? In this case, with, with 28,000 viral load, it'd probably work, but I think there are better choices here. It's not to say it's wrong, wrong, like the Dalutegravir 3TC, I think, would be wrong, wrong, but it's, it's, on, the, it's on the bubble. Uh, the TAF or anything Tenofovir here is gonna be enhanced so there's actually hypersusceptibility as a rule. So whatever you're losing in FTC or 3TC, with either TAF or TDF, you're gaining. So I would lean towards a regimen like that. Uh, with, the, with the ropivirine, is there enough hit there? Probably, I mean, it's probably okay with this viral load, I would say. So I think most of the other answers are, are okay. But that's kind of the thinking behind it. Any other comments? The only question I think that this thing brings up is why did you test this person? Meaning, why did you do the genotype? Do you do a genotype on everyone? Yeah. New patient, every new patient. Yeah. Whether they're whether they're naive or not. Yes, especially if they're naive, because you don't know what they picked up. Do you all do that in the Peds clinic uh, for a newly diagnosed adolescent? Uh, yeah. Right. We have been. Right, and so we don't know if it would be anything or 184V or worse, it could be multiple mutations, and that is going to guide what you do. One of the things, how many folks here in your clinics? are doing the uh, uh, test and treat immediately, the, the spontaneous. We're gonna, you know what I'm talking about? I'll explain it so you know what I'm asking. So there's a, there's a movement afoot, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places, that when you, somebody tests positive, you start them on therapy that day. It's like immediate treatment. And then you wait for the resistance test to come back and adjust as you need to. How many people are doing that immediate test and treat? Some? Yeah, a few. San Francisco's all over this right now. Um, they claim that there's great evidence to support it because you do lose some people in the cascade between testing and their first visit with a no-show, but I, I'm not convinced yet. I'd, I'd like to see a little bit more information, but that gets to your point, Glenn, that you know, if you're gonna just go and treat with some of these more high-powered agents, you know, does it make a difference? And maybe not, but it's good to know. Um, and I see there's questions coming. I'm not ignoring them. I'm just going to save them to the end so that we get to all of them. Um, so should I, this is a common question, right? You got somebody on the, the triple dose. I can't, you know, I can't, I'm not supposed to say trade needs a tripla. Um, but in a patient who has been on it for the last 10 years, right? So if you remember, it was the bomb, right? It was lit, right? It was all over it. Um, and back in 07, that's what we used. 87% of new prescriptions, maybe 90, I don't know. It was big, and so we have a lot of people still on it. 
yet it's, as it's gotten close, ironically, to its end of its patent life, suddenly it's evil. It's like, Dr. Evil? It's evil. And so we have to deal with it being evil. So this 45-year-old woman gets referred to you from another place. She was diagnosed 10 years ago. Her viral load originally was 36,000 with a C4 kind of 150. She's been put on the drug who we can't say its name uh, and been on that for 10 years. For viral load's been undetectable. CD4 count now is 525. Um, and she, it's her only regimen. She, you ask her 25 ways to Sunday. Are you having any symptoms? Any pain behind your eye when you pee? Is there anything going on? Anything going on that, that you know, you are worried about? Um, no. She feels good. She's got James Brown. I feel good. And so what are you going to do? Are you going to pull a Herbert Walker brush, not going to debt, change it wouldn't be prudent, or, or would you change her to something else? Let's go ahead and vote. I forgot. It's sad. I picked out the music and I don't remember this one. Anybody know that one? What? Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Cosby. That's why I picked it. Yeah, thank you. The Cosby Show. Uh, I just thought that would be a timely thing to add. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just saying. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, bye, Felicia. Okay, so. Um, so 71% would, would continue this, right? Um, uh, what about the panel? What do you guys think? Susanna, what are, what are you going to do in your clinic? So this is actually one of those things where I think it has to be informed decision-making with patients. But I, I will say that patients, we have, I mean, obviously everyone has a lot of patients on this regimen. And um, for me, there has been a lot of switching off, in large part because this regimen is not always compatible with DAAs for HCV. And I will, I will say that I've had some patients come off who say, I felt great, I was on it for eight years, didn't seem to bother me. When I came off, I realized how much it affected my thinking, my sleep, et cetera. And I've actually had several of my veterans at the VA say, please, I would like to go to a group to convince everyone to come off of this regimen because it uh. actually has changed my life. So I think sometimes people have been on it for so long, they don't even recognize the effects of the drugs. I'm not saying it's horrible. I agree with you. It is a funny story. But, um, but, uh, but I sit there and have the conversation. And, um, and, and I wouldn't say I encourage people, but I certainly encourage them to at least consider switching. Okay. Larry, what about your... Well, obviously, old. most of my patients aren't on that on the medication that long a period of time. Yeah. Having said that, that you know, virtually all of our patients who leave and go to adult care, if they leave on a, a fabrins and two other drugs, are switched by the adult providers as soon as they uh, they cross the threshold. And in fact, th and then Is that they're a told, turf battle or something. That's right. Well, and then they're told, I can't believe those people at Children's <laughs> oh, kept doing that medicine. <laughs> It's, <laughs> it's so, so unkind, it's so rude. So we're feeling a bit of pressure now to, <laughs> to start changing our, our patients Perfect. over. Henry, what do you think? Yeah, I think everybody says it's so much of an individual decision. You know, once in a while you find somebody in a similar situation has been on nevirapine since the beginning of time. And the question is, do you keep them on nevirapine? I've got which a couple. Is, which, yep. It's, a lot of patients have strong feelings 
and if they're doing well, I guess so be it. But uh, I think what Susanna said, it is interesting that sometimes when somebody is on Favarin, or she's going to say later, when they have hepatitis C, and suddenly they treat the hepatitis C, you remove some drug, they say, I didn't know what good health could be. Yeah. So uh, that is important. So Dr. Treisman, I'm going to give you the last word on this one. Uh, tell me about the psychotropic effects of these different antiretroviral agents. Start with the fibrin, but there's others too, right? right. So <clears throat> um, depression is a complicated condition to diagnose, and a lot of people have low-grade affective uh, disturbance on the fibrins. We like to get people off of it in, my, in, in our group because we see a lot of depression. We have a bias. Um, but there is a signal for integrase inhibitors uh, with depression. Um, how big that signal is is still up in the air, but there's definitely people who get depressed on integrase inhibitors. And uh, it's been seen with all three, so it's not just one drug. Um, and you could argue that, it's, that maybe there's more with raltegravir, but I think the data is lousy. So I think that we're still at the place where I can say it can happen with integrase inhibitors. It happens more with ephavirins. A lot of people, when you switch them, just like Susanna said, are, they, they suddenly realize that. On the other hand, you'll have patients who come in who have an almost magical belief in a tripla. And they, they just, it is the drug, and they don't want to change. And um, the, I think that you have to respect the fact that some people, um, now it depends on how long you've been seeing them. So we have people who come in who clearly have mild major depression on ephavirins, mm -hmm. don't want to change. I treat their depression, they get somewhat better, we struggle along, finally I persuade them, and they say, wow, that really made a difference. But that can take a year or two. Yeah. And I think that it's one of those things where, you know, you start with people and they get to know you and they get to realize you really are their advocate. Right. Uh, but I think, I think that it's, I, I do think that, um, you know, we aren't, we, are, we don't know our patient, someone comes in with a CD4 count of, of 50, they're already, they're sick, they feel sick. Yeah. And they're, so they feel way better when they go on the drug. Five years later, they have a CD4 count of 600. Yep. And when you, when you take them off, they feel way better when you take them off. So I think that knowing right. all those things d guides you in terms of thinking about your individual patient. So as I said at the outset of this session, oftentimes there's not an absolute right or wrong answer. Uh, but it's a judgment, and it's a common question, and I just wanted to air it out. So in the interest of time, um, I think I'm going to, oh, no, that, I want this one. Uh, then I'm going to skip the next one and go to uh, two more, and we'll probably wrap up. So this is a common question. Um, should I give PrEP to a seronegative partner of a successfully treated HIV patient? Happens a lot. I mean, the question comes up a lot. So this is a 45-year-old guy who makes an appointment to see you to request PrEP. That's his, why he got an appointment with you. He's the partner of an HIV-positive patient who has been on therapy for 17 years who has had a consistently undetectable virus. So their partners are in a monogamous relationship, he, they claim, and 17 years, he, the, the, the seronegative partner feels well, doesn't have any history to speak of, is on no other medications. And you ask, are you having a relationship even on the side a little bit with anybody else? And he says no. So at this point, what are you going to do? Prescribe PrEP, not prescribe PrEP, or not sure? Let's go ahead and vote. Mike, while they do that, would you please describe a little bit? <laughs> not even a little bit. Elaborate on the def that, that definition. Uh, a little bit. 
Oh. This question will self-destruct in 10 seconds. I will self-destruct. Okay. Whoops. I'm sorry. There we are. Whoa. I think I asked this question last year to this audience, and it was about 20% who said do it. So now we're at 60%. You're here. <laughs> Let me start with Dana and come to Connie. Dana, what would you do? shared decision around uh, the person's perceived risk of what he wants to be able to do for his health to prevent an infection in any way he feels is uh, safe and effective and it's safe and effective um, you know, we did, we did about people who end up getting renal dysfunction if we're giving previously healthy people uh, a medication but if he's got the discussion and the side effects and he's going to be monitored and it's really something he feels like he wants to do for his health after that um, discussion that the <clears throat> partners uh, study or, uh, HPTN in Africa that showed that treatment and prevention was so successful with all the serodiscordant couples. So giving him all that data about how low his risk is if his partner is totally suppressed uh, is part of the discussion, but I... Uh, would prescribe it if you wanted it based on all of that. Okay. Connie, do you have a counter view or do you agree? Um, no, it's not a counter view. I think those are all uh, completely appropriate points. Um, but I would have two other questions that I would ask Go ahead. the patient. And the first is, why are you asking me for PrEP? Mm -hmm. So you had the conversation about him not having extracurricular partners. What about his conviction about his partner okay. having extracurricular partners. Does yep. he perceive himself at being somewhat increased risk, not so much on the basis of whether his partner is continually suppressed, mm -hmm. but because of some issue in the relationship? So right. I guess, you know, obviously that's part of the conversation you have with the patient, but this was brought up in our one of our previous courses, and yep. somebody had the same comment, so. Henry? It also, uh, though, assumes that you, uh, your partner is going to be suppressed for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. That assumes that they're not going to have uh, uh, pill fatigue, that they're not going to be put on some other drug by the interns that might interact with something depending on yep. what regimen they're on. So you are, again, trusting that life will be perfect for your partner and they will remain suppressed. And the question right. is, how much of a risk are you willing to take? Right. So let me cut to the chase just in the interest of time. I think the points here have been extremely well made. Um, what I have adopted as a, as a way forward with this is I say, okay, I'm going to let you make the decision. I'm going to give you one set of data, and that is assuming that your partner stays on the regimen and stays undetectable, your chance of becoming infected from your partner is approaching zero. So with that information in hand, you tell me, do you want to be on PrEP? or do you not want to be on PrEP? And they don't have to admit to anything, or they don't have, you just, yep, if they want it, I'll write the prescription and I'll follow them. If they don't, I say, are you comfortable with that? Good, we'll move forward. But a lot of times, there are um, a little bit, right, of, of issues. So in the interest of time, I'm gonna to move to, I'm gonna- PrEP won't protect you from other things. PrEP won't protect you from other things. Right, like all of Dana's talk. You gotta say it. So real quickly, this is a question about a back of ear. It comes up every year. I've reframed it this time in a different context for the case. But somebody who has known coronary artery disease. So this is a 
little bit complicated. The 59-year-old guy who started on therapy many years ago um, and comes to you after being away for four years, so it moved somewhere and now they're back in town and they're reestablishing care with you. And in the meantime, uh, they had been seen by another provider. They're on this fixed-dose combination of Ocavir 3TC and Dolutegravir, doing really well on that. Uh, viral load's undetectable, CD4 counts high. Um, cholesterol before he started statins was uh, elevated with a low L HDL. He is a smoker and he's a diabetic, and the key thing is about four months before he came back to see you, he had a heart attack. And now he's on a statin, and he's on an aspirin, and he's on a beta blocker, and all the right things, right? But he's still on the regimen that we talked about. So now the question is, he's already had a heart attack. With all the appropriate medical management, you want to get him to quit smoking, right? What would you do? Would you continue his current regimen? Would you change the abacavir to something else? Or some other option? Go ahead and vote. <laughs> All right, we know this was Mel Brooks, right? We know it was Maxwell, smart. Uh, who was the co-writer that helped Mel Brooks get this on the screen? Because Mel Brooks had trouble finishing things. Anybody remember? Buck Henry, good. Nice one. We're going to have a door prize for people who get these, right? I'm not sure if anyone wants a door, but that's what we're going to do. All right, so 20, about a quarter people would stay the course. Um, thoughts from the panel? Anybody? Susanna? would be I, I feel that this is just not something we have an answer on and I feel like you can make an argument for one or the other whether or not abacavir is associated with cardiovascular risk I mean now we've got the darunavir um, potential increased cardiovascular risk um, you know as you mentioned dalutegravir potentially associated with depression I mean there's a lot of these things that are coming out right yeah. and I think that because we just don't know the truth right everything that we do in research has a point estimate and the truth lies somewhere in between in these cases where you just don't know exactly what the truth is, I would argue, why would you not switch um, to a regimen that has not yet been associated with cardiovascular events until mm -hmm. there is a greater knowledge one way or the other? So to me, it's about a risk-benefit um, uh, assessment and until you have a final answer considering right. that it may be true. So to cut to the chase on this, and I want to get to a couple more cases, and I want to get, our, get to our question. Um, here, here are the data as I know them. As, as far as we do know that if there is an increased risk from abacavir, it's while the person's on it. And when they stop the medicine, it tends to drift away. Second thing we know is that from cohort studies, there tends to be a relative risk, just like they show with the Runiver, about 1.8, roughly, relative risk, and it was statistically significant. Um, but in the, in the randomized trials that the FDA retrospectively analyzed in thousands of patients, they didn't see the signal. Now you could argue in the randomized trials are pre-selected, they're younger, et cetera, but that's what those what the data are. The thing that has been, I think, um, a little bit more compelling for me is there's an article or two about the possibility that abacavir can increase platelet aggregation and that that might be an explanation in the guy like this, a smoker is older and uh, not on a statin at the time, why he might have a heart attack. But that raises another question, and that is, okay, if now he's on aspirin, does that counteract that effect? I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's, it's, a total, it's a total mess. So 
so what you're left with is what, what are the modifiable factors? Smoking is the most important thing. That's, that's my main point. That we can dance on the head of a pen about a Bacavera, Darunavera, God knows what. But it's smoking, for goodness sakes. The guy just had a heart attack and he's still smoking. That's strange. Talk about addiction. I mean, that's serious. That's a big addiction. And if a heart attack didn't, you know, sort of slap him to reality, then smoking, to quit smoking, I don't know sure anything will, but that would be what I'd focus on first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And as, you know, I don't know, I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other. So I just wanted to put it out there because it comes up, and I think the majority of people like you would switch to something else because you can, and why not give them the best, you know, the cleanest way forward, but the smoking can't be ignored. Right. One other thing I want to point out, this is, I talked about this last year at this meeting, but only about, I think 60 people are here from last year, so just to reiterate this. The uh, CNICS did a, um, an interesting study. CNICS is a cohort of eight centers around the United States, and they adjudicated MIs. And what they found was that out of, at least in their first look, out of about 25,000 patients, they had about 1,100 MIs on the EMR record. When they adjudicated it by sending the actual hospitalization records and whatnot to, in a blinded fashion to three cardiologists, they determined that a substantial proportion, up to 40%, were not true MIs. So it, the medical record, electronic medical record, was incorrect. So how did that happen? Well, somebody gets admitted to hospital, uh, usually time it's not the outpatient doc taking care of them and sometimes it's somebody they've never seen them and they put down rule out MI well that's not a ICD whatever diagnosis so but they put MI because I think they got it and they turn out not having it and they don't take that off the record so there it is it's a chart virus right so you end up with with an error so the take-home point there is that when you're working with cohort data you, you got to know the data right and so not everything that's reported is, is accurate, not because the investigators are um, uninformed or wrong, I mean, you know, they're not bad people, just the data sometimes is not correct. The second thing that I think was also important in this study is that they went further among those with MIs to categorize them as type one and type two. Type one is the one we always think about, plaque, rupture, platelet aggregation, blockage, boom. But there's a, something called a secondary MI from either vasospasm or supply-demand mismatch like you get in sepsis. Um, and those heart attacks also happen. In the Scenics cohort among the sure enough MIs, that's a southernism, among the sure enough MIs, it was 50-50. 50-50. So the usual modifiable risk factors that we think about may not be totally at play here. So it's just a a couple of interesting things that I thought were uh, important from the literature. Um, this is another question. I'm going to get to two more real quick. This comes up a lot. Somebody's got low detectable virus. I get this question all the time. What do I do? 55-year-old guy gets referred to you, diagnosed 18 years ago. His initial viral load was 900,000 and uh, C4 count of 70. His current viral load is 85 or 65, 85. Um, Prior value was 62, CD4 counts 525. He started on an old-fashioned regimen, but now he's on dalutegravir, uh, darunavir, and 3TC. He has no historical resistance tests available for you. So what do you do? Change his regimen, stay the course, uh, or not sure? Go ahead and vote. 
as Hawkeye Pierce, Trapper John, Spear Chucker Jones. Right. Spear Chucker Jones was in the movie, but not in the TV show. Neurosurgeon. Who was in both? Football player. Who was in both? The Radar. And? Mulcahy. Okay. So most people wouldn't change. What about the panel? Sort of yes, no from anyone. I, I wouldn't change. All um, I have to say, I, I, we've had a lot of uh, benefit for um, reminding people about making sure they're not on aluminum or magnesium uh, supplements that could be oh, interfering with the dolly that's a good thought. Just to remind them, <clears throat> you get some, some <coughs> little bit of mileage right. from that. The, the reason I wouldn't change is from two bits of data. One, lots of studies have been done, especially in the distant past, but where this kind of smoldering viremia is there, and you intensify the regimen with another drug, doesn't change a thing. So what that tells me is in this situation, there's not necessarily any de novo ongoing replication, which is all antiretroviral therapy blocks. Just blocks an uninfected cell from becoming infected. And the regimen is working. So you say, well, wait a minute, where'd the virus come from? And my answer is that there are still nests of reservoirs of latently infected cells that periodically spit out virus, sometimes in response to infection stimuli, but just sometimes because. It's typically the people that had a high initial viral load, like he did with 900 plus thousand, that have a larger reservoir later on, and they're gonna get this kind of smoldering viremia. It is not a sign of failure. You're gonna follow the person, of course, and if it goes above 100, or especially if it goes above 200 to 300, then you get a little bit concerned. But if it's gonna stay below 100 like that, lozengan, as they say, which means let it go. Or just let it, let it go. So Mike, how many 200, uh uh, determinations would you allow before you switch? Not many. So if, I, if it came back at 200 and I have them scheduled for my usual like six months from now, I'm bringing them back in a month for a recheck or maybe even two to three weeks. What if, so, what if, what if he was depressed? What if he had HIV? Well, if he's depressed, it's he not that, Right, then you worry about missing doses and whatnot, and that's a whole different situation. But I'm talking about somebody like him who's been, quote unquote, suppressed and stable. Oh, my goodness. Time's up. Um, it's stable for a while. I do want to get to this last question for Larry. Um, so what do I do with the pregnant patient? Uh, in turn, I know you, you treat kids, but th it has to do with moms and regimens. So this is, you know, you, you catch them right after they came from mom. So, yeah. so there's a 30-year-old woman who's newly diagnosed when she came in pregnant, and uh, she has that miraculous 28,650 combo. <laughs> Everything else is the same. It's her first pregnancy. She wants to start therapy. She thinks she should. What are you going to use? Here are your choices. Let you look for a second. And there are some wrong answers here. Actually, several wrong answers. Let's go ahead and vote. Pressure's on. We're back to good smart. What other trivia can we talk about? Oh. Um, so if I'm... Everybody flies, right? You get on an upgrade list, and if there's uh, three seats for an upgrade and I'm number four, and they fill the three and I'm the top of the list but didn't get it, I call that a Maxwell Smart because I missed it by that much. And that's what I, it's a Maxwell Smart, as opposed to a Dirty Harry where they made your day. Okay, so let's see. A lot of wrong answers. A lot of wrong answers. Is this something 
Larry, that you deal with it all with sort of regimens that are okay for moms and not approved yet? Yeah, well, we, you know, obviously we see them. I mean, you know, we're, we're looking now because there's no data on dietegravir. Right. And uh, we would love to embrace it for a variety of reasons. Yep. Um, but, but there's no really good, yep. good data. Um, um, you know, we're also, we also obviously like uh, raltagravir uh, right. regimens because... Uh, so cutting uh, to the chase, you're, you're exactly right. There are no data yet that have shown the safety for TAF or dolutegravir. So those are two drugs you might not want to use right now in a pregnant woman. Is it likely to be a problem? Maybe not. But the data do show that for TAF, uh, there's about a four to five times higher plasma level in the, in the uh, fetus than there is in the mom. We don't know what that means. Maybe nothing. But it is higher. Uh, and that, it doesn't know, it doesn't know whether that's a problem for them. And similarly, dolutegravir uh, gets high placental transfer and so much higher levels in the baby. Is it a problem? Mm, probably not. Maybe not. Could be. So for now, the recommendations from the maternal uh, guidelines say not enough data, don't do that yet. And that's, that's the point. So I'm going to close with that one. I'm going to try to, do we have time for a few questions that I can go through? Yeah. Just let me ra race through these and quick questions, quick answers from anybody on the panel. Have you encountered HIV pregnant patients um, positive for smoking uh, PCP, which I guess is angel dust, right? And does that change how you manage this patient? Dr. Treisman you, and Dr. D'Angelo. No? Uh, you, yes. You see them. <laughs> what, what do you do? We see them all the time. Uh, well, obviously, we tell them not to do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, but it, it, <laughs> just it, say no, it, Nancy Reagan. It, uh, you know, I, and that's actually the, the, the most important aspect of, uh, of uh, trying to uh, protect them uh, during their pregnancy is, is to try to get them off of drugs at whatever cost. Yep. Um, because I, I, otherwise, I, I wouldn't necessarily change their, their medication regimens based on that. So, right. one of the interesting things about PCP is that. If you give animals an opportunity to take drugs, they take every addictive drug. They don't like PCP. PCP is a very weird drug. It's aversive for most animals. And people who use PCP and abuse PCP are an odd group of people. And so um, I think that you have to think about depression in someone who's using PCP. Um, and you have, to think about, you have to think about the possibility that their continued use of PCP indicates other things. Um, and I, I'm very aggressive about uh, getting those people a psychiatric evaluation. Besides this obvious treatment for their, for their, yeah. uh, for their substance use, um, okay. they, they are weird. I'll take this next one. If you're smoking PCP, see me after the talk, especially <laughs> if you're smoking it in here. I think that's the dust that Bruce Springsteen referred to shaking out of the coonskin cap and, and spirits in the night, if you, those of you who are into that song. No, anyway, all right. What regimen would you use in a patient who fails um, an alvitegravir booster regimen and shows up with an 184V, K65R, and Q148? So what that means is they've got resistance to tenofovir, resistance to FTC, and resistance to um, the integrase inhibitor, that's the 148. And the answer is this person's in trouble because dolutegravir can still work, but you've got to use it twice a day. The tenofovir is likely not to work anymore, 
And so you've got to go to something like Zadovidine, ideally, which is not easy to take and tolerate. So this person's in a bit of trouble. Some people are going to a combo of dolutegravir with darunavir, boosted, and um, maybe throwing in a couple of other uh, things just for good measure, maybe some metrovirine. But you're, you're sort of out there in Never Never Land, so you hope this doesn't happen, um, but it does. And this also tells me that this person's not a good pill taker. You have one pill once a day, and they messed it up pretty bad, right? So that's unfortunate. Um, would you suggest PrEP in an antenatal female who continues to have unprotected sex with her long-term suppressed partner? That's a good question. So you got serum discordant couple. Um, the woman is now pregnant, so they had some unprotected sex somewhere along the line. Um, and, but the, the seropositive partner is undetectable. What kind of advice do you give there? Anybody? You give PrEP? There's no, there's no answer. Uh, a lot of people would. A lot of people do it proactively so that the, if it's family planning, if there's such thing still as Planned Parenthood, you, you might prescribe for planning purposes to go on PrEP ahead of time. I, I could argue biologically it's not necessary. Um, because if, if the seropositive partner is undetectable, I really think the data indicate that that risk is approaching zero, if not zero. On the other hand, you're talking about maybe a one-year period of time, um, and I, I think most people would lean towards that just to make absolutely sure, uh, for the most part. All right. In the management of a couple at the HIV, oops, I just read that. Um, my go-to regimen for an M184V has been TAF, FTC, Alvatagravir, and then they added Darunavir. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think the extra, extra protease inhibitor is important here? Thoughts? Connie, what would you do? Well, obviously it depends on the circumstances. Like most of these, uh, it's an individualized decision, but I don't really think you need it. Yeah. in a treatment-naive individual or in someone who just has an M184V right. mutation. Now, I think based on Susanna's comment, trying to get three, re three drugs fully active, that yeah, makes some sense. But I think you're right. The data, at least from cohort studies and others, are showing that it really probably isn't necessary, and you can get by with a pretty solid uh, resistance barrier drug. And then something with tenofovir one way or the other, TAF or TDF, to have the extra hypersusceptibility uh, would be good. Um, a patient taking a single tablet regimen that starts with an A, Voldemort, reveals that for years has taken only three times a week. Persistently less than 20. What do you think? What's going on there? I mean, th those studies were done, right? I mean, we know that there are some patients who can get away with that. We know yep. that there are some patients who have differences in metabolism due to, you know, due to SIP uh, enzyme mutations. So none of that is, that's not shocking to me at all. In fact, we know that patients do this a lot. Right. Um, and have figured out that they can get away with this sort of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. There's actually something that when I talk to patients with HIV who I'm treating for hep C, I remind them that the habits they've developed in taking their antiretrovirals will not work with DAAs, as far as we know, right? Because I think this is, this is quite common. Yeah. yeah. So I think biologically what might be going on, and this is really a stretch, but uh, you remember the isoenzyme, we always talk about 3A4, but there's one called 2D6. 
And 2D6 is very important in the metabolism of efavirenz. And some people genetically have uh, low amounts of 2D6, and therefore the efavirenz levels are super high. So in some ways, they may have gotten to that every other day because they're getting toxic taking it every day. And they said, huh, if I back this down to once every, every, every other day instead of every day, I'd do okay. Well, they're probably right. And it probably works okay. The second part of that answer is that Efavirenz has been overdosed for years um, at 600 milligrams. And if you think back to 98 when DMP-006 or whatever it was called, then um, that drug which became Efavirenz um, uh, never really had a great dose-ranging study, and they leaned towards a higher dose because they didn't want to see resistance and all that. But the, um, a lot of Africa cohorts now are exploring the notion of using 400 milligrams as standard um, dosing. And so I probably continue on, uh, encourage them to take it every day or maybe find another regimen. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if it continued to work for those reasons. Yeah. These are the patients when Hep B co-infected frequently don't suppress their Hep B because right. this issue. might work in their HIV, but it doesn't work yeah. as well the in every their Hepatitis other B. And these are when bad. we see this discordance. Good it's point. usually a pretty clear sign that those patients are doing some sort of a, yep. you know, whether it's a whether it's a regimen that they figured out works for their HIV, um, or whether it's more random. Yeah. Right. We have two other quick questions, and then we'll break for lunch. Um, elite controller and pregnancy. So go back to our first case, undetectable virus, it's time it's a woman, CD4 counts 650, and viral load's 28,000. No, viral load's undetectable. Viral load's undetectable. So what's the chance of transmission, you guys think, if it's truly a leak controller? Do you need to give antiretroviral therapy there? Would you give antiretroviral therapy? Connie said she would. Yes, it depends how risk averse you are. Ah, yeah. So I don't think there's a firm answer, right? Um, the data that came out of, uh, this is Tom Quinn from, from 2000, um, did a study in Rakai, uh, Uganda. And what he looked at was viral load in a group of serodiscordant couples and then divided the groups into five with the lowest versus the highest and looked at transmission and found that when the viral load in the small, the lowest group was, uh, the ceiling was about 1,100 copies, so zero or undetectable to 1,100, there was no transmissions from in the serodiscordant situation. Now you could argue, wait a minute, that's not pregnancy. You're right. Um, but everything seen, and Yvonne Bryson's done similar work with pregnancy and shown a similar type of threshold that if the viral load's below a certain point, there doesn't seem to be transmission. Underscore that doesn't seem to be. So I think it's unlikely that this child would become infected, but I, I would probably err on the side of treating mom through pregnancy to be extra cautious because you're talking about lifelong therapy and give Larry more to do, which we don't necessarily want to do at this day and time. Okay, and then the final question. Is there any research into using dolutegravir alone in an elite controller to minimize AEs and drug exposure? I don't think so. No. <laughs> There's not. Um, but, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think if you're going to treat, you're going to treat. Um, I, I, I'm a leery about monotherapy with kind of anything these days. Um, but, you know, maybe it could work, but, you know, don't know. So, 
Let's thank our panel for a great job, and thank you for your attention.